the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey, and it is the 30th anniversary of Dragon Quest, and we have a full retrospective waiting for you in the second half of this podcast. I've got Bob and Nadia both joining me. But first, we're going to talk about something that is a little more recent in terms of RPG development, which is the release of Witcher 3 Blood and Wine, and also maybe the Fallout 4 Far Harbor DLC. And to do that, I have with me the illustrious Mike Williams. Mike, it's been a while. Welcome back to the show. Hello, hello, folks. It's good to be back, Kat. And I I got illustrious this time. That's good. I mean, yes, illustrious is a good word to put it. Um, (laughs) Very, very dignified and illustrious. But you have been playing The Witcher 3 Blood and Wine. You have a review in progress going on on the site right now. Um, you were also the one who reviewed the original Witcher 3, so I'm curious, what are your thoughts? Does it live up to the original game? Uh, the the Witcher 3 Blood and Wine is, is like Hearts of Stone, showing that CD Projekt Red really, really knows what it's doing, at least in the area of storytelling and quest design. And it's one of those uh, DLC that's somewhat hard to write about um because it's still just very very good it's like hey did you like the witcher 3 this is more of the stuff that you liked about the witcher 3 um whereas some companies have dlc that sort of varies in quality like maybe this dlc will have one focus and this dlc will have another um both hearts of stone and blood and wine are are Solid continuations of what was already great in The Witcher 3. And what was already great about The Witcher 3, in your opinion? Uh, I, I personally really... Uh, I, I understand it's it's difficult for people to get in the shoes of uh, Geralt of Rivia, uh, Master Witcher extraordinaire, but... Uh, I, I pretty- Medieval Batman. Medieval Batman is what I call him, because... Uh, yeah, I'm going to diverge there for a second. Because... He's back in the day, he's got his Witcher senses, he's looking around the crime scenes, and he has that growly Batman voice uh, that uh, Christian Bale brought to the role. So it's kind of like he just goes around the world stomping people out and uh, uh, detecting things. So that's what I call him, and, and it will stick. Eventually the whole world will call him Medieval Batman. Batman. Det- I mean, when when you called him medieval Batman, I I couldn't unsee it because I was just like, oh my god, he is medieval Batman. All he needs is the cape and cowl, and there you go. And in that regard, I'm not surprised that you like it because you're kind of famously a comic book fan. I I am famously a comic book fan, uh, and as I was saying before, like a lot of people, uh, I understand may have issues with the fact that Geralt is an actual character. Is it Geralt or Geralt? I- I think it's Geralt. I think it's Geralt. <laughs> I'm just making sure that I haven't been pronouncing it wrong all this time. I mean, I'm probably going to pronounce it like six six million different ways uh, before we, we finish this up. <laughs> um, but he, he's very much his own character. And, and really what you're doing, uh, 
CD Projekt Red, when they're creating their quests, offer up interesting choices for you. Uh, but you're mostly steering Geralt and his within a specific set of lanes so it, it may not be as as wildly divergent as some of the characters you can create in uh say like a mass effect uh or something like that but um it's still quite different like early on there's a quest and uh you save a knight who is doing this cage fight battle against a monster and you have the choice. It's like, well, you're the victor. Do you want to kill the monster? Or do you want to spare it? Uh, and those are two uh, choices that are both definitely within Geralt's character, but they're very different emotional choices f- for you as a player, like defining your character. So you can kind of um, take Geralt onto a particular emotional range, both of which feel right for the character but at the same time are very different. Uh, That's a tough balancing act because, I mean, you could do things that are theoretically wildly out of character. So um, I'm impressed that CD Projekt Red has been able to kind of toe that line. Yeah, it's it's really hard to to come across as as a, you have a set character, but no, you're still leaving your mark on it. Uh, And yes, Perhaps in the future, uh, well, Cyberpunk will probably be creator-owned character. So that will probably be more of what fans want. And I think Cyberpunk will knock it out of the park for fans that just don't want a set character. Um, but Yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah, for what uh, The Witcher 3 is, it's very, very well done. And uh, I would think maybe in the future they'll follow after cyberpunk and maybe uh let another character uh let you create your own witcher or whatever because there are a number of them what do you think of the the new area in witcher 3 um one of the the main goals that they had for it that environment was it to be i don't know much nicer um essentially you're in the south of france um it's uh it's a little more inviting than the previous areas which were Kind of that foreboding Eastern Europe, um, darkness lies in the woods landscape. Yeah, no, it's definitely. Uh, uh, I forget what they what regions they were actually going for, but it's definitely a medieval France, medieval Italy sort of mix. Um, it's a lot brighter, uh, and even beyond just the general look of the area. Uh, it has a completely different tone, whereas uh, the place that you were, uh, Novigrad, Velen, those areas are very Eastern Europe, very low fantasy, like Game of Thrones style. Everybody's life sucks. It's in the middle of a war. Um, over on this side, the area is Toussaint, and it's uh, very much there. They're not in a war. Everyone lives happy lives. There are a lot of parties. There's a lot of ceremony. Uh, they have knights that act like the old, like, like book knights, like fighting book for knights. ladies' hearts and and all that stuff. Uh, and they all take it seriously. And yes, there is an undercurrent of uh, oh, this is not one hundred percent 
uh, all grand and good and justice and honor, but uh, the populace and the area presents itself as a much nicer place. Uh, and that actually starts in the very beginning of the game because uh, uh, since it's it's seamless with The Witcher 3, Wild Hunt, uh, you start in Velen's No Man's Land and two knights from Tucson come to find Geralt. And uh, the very first opening quest is these two knights trying to be Tucson knights to local bandits who obviously don't listen to them. And Geralt is telling them the entire time, look, you talking to them is not going to work. We're going to probably have to kill them. And you do. But uh, it, it establishes early on that contrast between where you've been playing for Wild Hunt and Hearts of Stone and the new region. Did you get? Have you accessed the winery yet? And if you have, what is your feeling on it? Uh, you, you're probably you're talking about Geralt's uh, estate. Yeah, um, the estate that you can get in Toussaint. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I described it in the review in progress as very much like Assassin's Creed 2's villa. Um, it's a nice area. Uh, you pay money in it for specific improvements. And then you come back, uh, usually like two or three days, like you'll talk to your major domo, uh, who Geralt calls BB. Uh, it's like, like, uh, Barius Basilton or something like that. I forget what his actual name is. Um, but you talk to him, you say, Hey, I want to prove, improve this part of the villa. You pay him some money. And then he says, uh, I'll get the workmen on it. And in two or three days, you can come back and it'll be fixed, which I, I, I really think helps. It annoyed me in the beginning how it wouldn't uh, add the improvement immediately. But uh, I get the point from a, a in-game style. It, it sort of keeps up the, the illusion that it is a real world. Is, is there like, are there any real benefits to building up the, the estate? Uh, it's a tiny town. Uh, uh, it's a tiny town. Basically, you can add, uh, you know, like a blacksmith, an armor's bench, um, all the stuff that you would need, you know, that you go back to a town for. You can put all of that stuff in, in the vineyard itself, and it has storage. Uh, uh, like I said in my review, one of the big things I had a problem with, and I still have a problem with, is uh, Geralt's bags gets full of useless stuff. Yeah, I and, hate that. And not not useless as in it will never be used because I could just sell all that stuff. Useless as in it's not immediately useful, but I may need it later. Uh, and so you just have like bags and bags of stuff and screens of stuff, and it's really annoying um, with uh, blood and wine and the vineyard you can finally just put that stuff in storage so it's like okay i may need that later but i don't ne necessarily need it in my bag right now uh so yeah that's and, and that is again uh blood and wine doesn't necessarily fix any issues that you may have had with the witcher 3 before much like Hearts of Stone. This is very much a continuation of what they already do well. So, uh... Not well, a lot of reason to change it when yeah. the original game <clears throat> pretty much was met with universal acclaim, right? 
pretty much pretty much that's uh uh, and they did they did like go over the UI. Uh, it is improved. It's still it's just you know you still have the same problem thanks to the way the UI and the crafting and ultimate uh, alchemy mechanics sort of work. So you just always have a bunch of random stuff on hand. Uh, and yes, that is an actual problem in a number of RPGs. I mean, I still play World of Warcraft, and that is a problem. But on WoW, I have mods that help me sort through all that stuff. Um, Any advanced? Have you tried the advanced mutations? Uh, yes, I've tried a couple of advanced mutations. They are uh, wildly strong, uh, and in some cases, super game breaking. But I guess at this point, uh, CD Projekt Red is like, you know what? Um, if you're playing at this level. You've probably sunk in a number of hours, and your your Geralt is a superhuman anyway, so why not? Um, there's one uh, later one that actually brings you back to essentially full health if you drop down to zero. It makes you invincible. <laughs> it makes you invincible, and then... Uh, like you you die, essentially, but then you are revived, you become invincible, and it brings you up to full health. Correct. And it's on a timer, so essentially you get instant... Ro- in, it, it, it's really game-breaking. I mean, it's one of the last advanced mutations. Like, it's very... It's basically end-game stuff, but it's really good. Yeah, no, and a lot of them are, are really good. There's one There's one for crossbow that I use that jumped crossbow damage, I think, like, five-fold. Jeez. Um... So they they are like uh, game breaking to to get to those points though you have to give up uh, to research advanced mutations you have to give up ability points and uh, usually greater mutators uh, which were your your extra like vitality boosting things in Hearts of Stone and Wild Hunt so there is a little bit of give and take but they are really really strong so I mean. For some players, that's the kind of feature that you may want to avoid. Uh, you don't need to actually go in there because it's it's almost treated like an extra tree uh, in your abilities and whatnot. But yeah, no, they are pretty pretty strong. <laughs> it's fun because it's game breaking, and some people just want to break the game. They don't care. So the last thing that I was gonna kind of ask you about. Um, so the thing that. Witcher 3 does with Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine was it lets you start a new character at like level 35 and just jump straight into the quest. Um, as somebody who I know has done that, uh, do you find that advisable? Okay, so this, this once again, you get to peek behind the curtain into our jobs. To review this, uh, we could not, uh, like sometimes we'll get codes for DLC and stuff. And we can just apply them to our accounts normally. Uh, so for a game like uh, Far Harbor, when, uh, which is Fallout 4's recent DLC, we're literally just continuing our review character or our live character forward into the DLC. Uh, for The Witcher 3, uh, I had to make an entirely new account. Uh, I don't know why, that's just one of the rules. Um, so I had to go through that system. Like I have a, a girl that is of the correct level, but I had to start with that system because 
uh, I needed a new account. So uh, it's a little annoying uh, because if you've been playing the game, there's sort of a, and I, I feel this is true of most RPGs, like you can't really jump towards the end because there's sort of a mental progression uh, in how you craft your character based on what you're doing, based on how you've been playing. And if you jump straight in, like with this this new game mode, to straight to level 35, uh, you don't have any of that. So there's no, like, yes, you have a feel like, oh, yeah, I'm probably going to prefer combat more. Let's put points into that. But when you've been building a character over time, you you have a feeling you're like, oh, I've been doing this more recently, so let's put points towards that. Uh, and you don't have that when you start in the beginning. So uh, I would personally recommend, if you have a character, um, start there. Start at the very beginning uh, and work your way up to the DLC. Uh, if you have a character, pull them over. Uh, both... Uh, Blood and Wine and Hearts of Stone are seamless with The Witcher 3. Uh, so there are extra quests that sort of send you in different directions, but you can actually dip in and out of those regions, uh, those quest lines and regions, as you see fit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's a good option. It's a great option, but it's just not my thing. I, I like the gradual amping up of my character, the gradual building, starting with the foundation and and adding walls and, and stuff like that. Well, let's be honest. Like, I think they put it in for reviewers. Yeah. That, I, that, I mean, yeah, that's just pretty much how... Uh, it's not an ideal way to play the game. No, it isn't. Uh, it's it's not at all. And, and like I said, for RPGs, uh, just jumping in, like, say, hey, you're level 50. And, and I have that same problem with... Um, uh, once again, talking World of Warcraft, they have level boosts. Guild Wars 2 also has level boosts, and I've tried both of those, and it's the same problem. You're just like, I don't... I haven't gradually worked up uh, a mental map or picture of this character or how I play this character. And so you're just... It's throwing a bunch of stuff at you and saying, yeah, go in a direction, and you don't have any direction to go because you've never played that class or whatever so really quickly uh i know that you ended up being disappointed with fallout 4 when it came out last year um in addition to um blood and wine which is coming out next week uh far harbor recently came out um which is a new region um in the fallout 4 kind of world um it takes place up in like maine it's kind of based on bar harbor and you got new factions and everything uh, if you haven't listened to the other podcast, our flagship podcast from us to you, or watched it on the video over on our YouTube channel, Hint Hint, um, we talked about it a bit in one of the segments um, and went at it a little bit. Um, having heard about what Bar Bar Harbor Far Harbor brings to the table, uh, do you have any intention of picking it up, Mike? Well, from what you've said, it, it's what I, I basically wanted. Uh, more from Fallout 4, which is uh, some actual narrative choices and more options uh, to move forward, especially uh, in quests, whereas Fallout 4, for the most part, was go-to-place, 
uh, maybe say snarky or nice thing and kill everybody. Um, Far Harbor sounds like it has more options in that vein, and I, I was personally waiting for uh, mentally the Obsidian or other studio taking what Bethesda had created with that sandbox and taking it more in a more narrative direction like New Vegas. Uh, but it sounds like Far Harbor is Bethesda doing that on their own. So I'm looking forward to it now. I still think New Vegas is overrated. Oh my God, Ken. Ah, it's a good thing we're not on the video podcast. People would be seeing my face. <laughs> Look, I, I liked New Vegas. It was great. I, I think the way I played it kind of ruined it for me mm-hmm. because... As I think I've said on this podcast before, I did the guide for New Vegas, and that meant that I had to play through pretty much every route for every faction, and it really exposed the seams of the design uh, to me. Yeah, you, you definitely, since you had to do a guide, you, you pretty much saw the entire skeleton, so the illusion of, of hey, there's all these choices, and you're taking yourself in a specific direction. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, it's like... Okay, so there are like the three factions. You have the um, uh, the guy who lives in the casino. I forget what he is, the, the computer guy. You have um, the California Republic, and then you have the Caesars Legion. And you, you end up having to pick one of these factions. And if you pick the um, guy in the computer, you end up finding Caesars Legion. Yeah, Mr. If House. You, yeah, Mr. House, yes, because the house always wins, of course. Um and if you pick Caesar's Legion, you have to fight the California Republic. And if you pick the California Republic, you have to fight Caesar's Legion. So it all comes down to this big battle for the Hoover Dam, which um, Fallout has never been super great at set pieces. And that definitely holds true for the big set piece on, on the Hoover Dam. Um, admittedly, my, my memories have gotten a little fuzzy of Fallout New Vegas because it's been like six years. But I, at the time i enjoyed it but i didn't think that it was as narratively complex as a lot of people seem to imply it was um far harbor on the other hand uh does a lot of really cool things in in my opinion you have three factions you have the children of the atom who are the scary religious cultists you have far harbor itself which is xenophobic villagers and you have dima who's a synth um seemingly related to nick valentine and he has established a synth colony and Far Harbor and the Children of Adam are on the brink of war, and Dima is trying to make peace, possibly through nefarious means. And so you can try and like approach this problem in a lot of different ways. You can side with one, you can side with the other, you can try and make peace throughout the land. But to do that, you might have to really compromise your ethics. Um, one thing that people kind of noted was, that I found interesting was that Far Harbor makes you kind of understand the Institute's point of view a little better than you would if you just played the regular game, which I think is pretty cool. Oh, and if you want to, and if you just don't want to deal with the sins, you can go and totally tell the Brotherhood to steal about them and just go in with the kill team and knock them all out. It's pretty great. But um, Fallout 4 Far Harbor, I would definitely recommend it. Um, It's been very well received. A lot of people have been saying that that is what Fallout 4's campaign should have been in the first place. I think a lot of people are actually kind of harsh on Fallout 4 myself, but I because I really enjoyed it. But I have really, really enjoyed Far Harbor so far. It's totally dragged me back into Fallout 4, unfortunately. 
because I have other games that I need to be playing right now. Um, and But at the same time, uh, I still haven't finished the main quest because I'm totally walking around just building settlements because far, Fallout 4 is really just post-apocalyptic Animal Crossing for me. Yeah, it sounds like it's uh, it's a lot more of what I wanted, and 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 I've said this before. It comes up in in our most recent episode of From Us to You, which you should also be watching uh, or listening. Hint, to, hint. Um, is that I don't think Fallout Four was a bad game. I think it was a very well done game that did not match the perception I had of what Fallout is. And uh, a lot of people really get angry about that. Um, like when a game is like, say, you think Call of Duty is one thing and then the new Call of Duty is not that or whatever. Um, I'm used to it and I'm fine with it. Uh, so I was very happy that people enjoyed Fallout 4 and it sold very well. It just wasn't my thing. So it sounds more like Far Harbor is more of what I was looking for from something called Fallout. Yes, I think so. And I think that uh, some people have been speculating that that may be due down to the fact that the DLC is typically handed all over to a smaller team um, from the from the main team. And so the, the main writer, so different writers are kind of given a chance to shine. Um, I know that the main writer of Fallout 4 was not on the Far Harbor DLC. And uh, that may explain some of why uh, some of why far harbor took the approach that it did but at the same time it's like i think that in a way they're kind of handcuffed with the story of a main fallout game because you are playing first of all like the last two games they've had some kind of macguffin that you're supposed to be going after in the first one uh, you're like trying to find your father i think it is yeah, and then you're trying to find your son and in this one, you're trying to find your child. Yes. So um, they with Fallout 4, maybe it's kind of a lazy way to get you in, invested in the kind of all of the things that are happening in the Commonwealth at that moment. But it's a, it's a good way to get the player into the, the mystery of the Institute. And I don't know, maybe maybe I'm maybe i'm cutting them too much slack maybe maybe they it, it would be nice if they were more nuanced with the way that they approach how you make your mark on the wasteland um to, at the end of the day um but at the same time they're huge games um so much <laughs> somebody put on reddit this morning uh they said their wife asked them when are you going to finish skyrim and they said one does not finish skyrim <laughs> And I think the same goes for any other Bethesda RPG. But, and that certainly goes for me because holy crap, I am still rolling through Fallout 4. But Far Harbor now available. You can go check it out on the PlayStation 4 and PC. God, I wish I were playing on the PC. I'm totally playing on the PS4, and the frame rate is atro uh -huh. atrocious. Uh -huh. No, um, I played Witcher, Witcher 3 on PS4 before. So this one I've been playing on PC, and it's just like, oh. I mean, I was fine with PS4 when I was on it, but now on the PC, I'm just like, oh, that's so pretty. <laughs> I know, God, and having access to those mods. But I wasn't able to play it on the PC because, alas, I uh, didn't get... I, I needed to start playing it ASAP when I was reviewing it, and I got the PS4 disc first. 
So that was that, but, and I don't think I'm going to start a whole new game just so that I can be playing on the PC. No, I will not. But uh, as for Blood and Wine, it is going to be out on the 31st of May, which is next week. So um, sounds like you're enjoying it, Mike, and it's certainly worth picking up. The final, the final tale of Geralt or Geralt um, of Rivia, medieval Batman. In the meantime, Mike, uh, we can find you on Twitter over at Automatic Zen, and you are a news writer. You have anything else you want to pitch? No, there's nothing I need to pitch. Just be excellent to each other, folks. Play RPGs and be excellent to each other. And that is an excellent note to go on for our next segment. Okay, I'm here now with co-host Nadia Oxford and our senior writer, Bob Mackey, who's returning to the podcast for the second week in a row. Hey, it's good to be back. And and we're now hitting the part of the podcast that I'm sure all of you have skipped ahead to listen to. That is our Dragon Quest 30th anniversary retrospective. Um, I have here two big Dragon Quest fans. Oh, yeah. And rather than recount... Um, kind of the the history of the series and and all that like which is is pretty well known and frankly we've been over it before i i think probably retronauts has done I, one i was gonna say if you want to hear a full retrospective we did one back in october uh you just yeah. look up our retronauts feed you can find it and also we did one um for role players realm back in the day back in 2011 so suffice it to say <laughs> like dragon quest is a pretty um, well-worn topic in these parts. But since we don't have a huge amount of time, I thought it would be kind of more fun to hit on our favorites from the series over the years. Um, I know that personally, I came into Dragon Quest relatively recently. The first Dragon Quest I played was in 2009, but I've really kind of gained an appreciation for it over the years. Um, so I guess the, the first favorite that I'm kind of wondering is, how about your favorite monster? And we'll start with you, Nadia. I think my favorite monster, uh, my first Dragon Quest game was actually the original Dragon Warrior for the NES. And I think my fir- my favorite monster is just the green dragon from that game. Mm. Um, the same design appeared in Dragon Quest Two and Dragon Quest Three. Uh, they kind of changed it for four, and then they changed it back because I guess just messing with the the iconic design didn't make people too happy. And I can see why, because the Green Dragon, like if you play the game quote unquote properly, you first encounter it when you're way too weak to really beat it. So you know you're going through uh, the field beating up slimes and bats and uh, you know all these little unthreatening sort of creatures. And then if you explore this cave, which kind of connects uh, the mainland to an island. Uh, you might stumble upon this green dragon that's guarding the princess that had been kidnapped. And uh, the green dragon just looks so vicious compared to everything else you've been up against at that point that you know, oh my god, I'm in trouble, and usually have like maybe a second to realize that before it incinerates you. <laughs> so I just really dig that simple style. I'm, I'm a big fan of Toriyama's monster designs in general. Yeah, he doesn't look... I mean, in NES terms, I suppose he looks pretty threatening. He... He looks relatively small and cute by today's standards. Um, more Puff the Magic Dragon than, um, you know, 
smog, but yeah. still but still distinctive and still a lot more intimidating than anything that you've encountered to that point. He, he's kind of grinning at you. He, he knows he's going to destroy you. You and your yeah, I, I like the menacing look pole. on his face. Yeah. <laughs> so what was it like the first time you beat him? Oh, shoot. It, it was pretty exhilarating, especially since um, at that point in time, uh, I was familiar with the idea of you rescue the princess after you beat the game, not before. So the idea that you could go off the beaten path and rescue the princess beforehand, I was like, wow, that's a really novel idea. Even though today it's like, haha, that's funny to even think about. But back then it was uh, it was pretty impressive. How about you, Bob? I'm going to have to go with, well, like Nadia, I'm also a Nakira Toriyama fan. I'm more a fan of his earlier work, I have to say. Uh, I was putting on my hipster voice, but I am because I liked his work when he was just drawing fat, chubby little manga characters. And Dragon Quest is so cute, so I had to go with what I feel is the cutest uh, monster, and that would be the Healing Slime. And uh, there's no cuter Healing Slime than the one in Dragon Quest Heroes. I think uh, its name was Helix, and I was like, that is an adorable thing, and I love it, and I want it to float around me. And It's a slime, and it's also a jellyfish, and it's got the cute slime face. And it's a simple design, but I I just like how... um, I just like how elegant the design is, but it still communicates a very cute creature. He's really yeah. friendly looking. Yeah. yeah. And it's also super heartwarming when um, in Dragon Quest IV, that's the first time monsters uh, a monster will join your party, and it's uh, Healy, the heel slime. He wants to yes. be a hero too, and it's a very heartwarming, touching journey uh, that that little character went on. And I think he's cute. So yeah, it's all about being cute. Uh, that That's what really makes it for me for Dragon Quest. And uh I think the monsters have gotten a little less cute as Toriyama has gotten more tired, but uh, <laughs> uh, Dragon Ball Z kind of broke him as a human being, and he's he's been picking up the pieces for 20 years now, but um, his early stuff, his fat manga character is essentially what Dragon Quest is built on, like Dr. Slump uh, or early Dragon Ball, stuff like that. Yeah, the little stubby arms and legs and the big head sort of thing going on. Yeah. Everybody's Dragon chubby. Quest, Dragon Quest is kind of built on the juxtaposition of Really cute monsters, really fanciful fantasy world, and weirdly, like, surprisingly dark storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does have its... Mo- like, uh, I'm, I'm, we're going to get into our, our favorite games eventually, but 5 definitely has its dark moment. It, it makes for a really good juxtaposition, and that, I think, is why Dragon Quest really stands out from a lot of games. Not to cast aspersions on Final Fantasy, which is a really different series in its own right. It's funny. They went the complete other direction from Toriyama. It's like, you got a a gag manga uh, artist. We got a real artist whose art is so complicated, we can barely put it on your screen with pixels. (laughs) We're we're just now able to render it in 3D. That's how complicated his art is. And that's fine. Like uh, Final Fantasy definitely has that much more modern look. And I think that's why it's always kind of appealed to western gamers a lot more Mm -hmm. um over the years uh compared to dragon quest which is very much like this is how we look we look cute and animated and all of that um but i think that having that really strong identity has been beneficial to dragon quest over the years and oh my god dragon quest 11 is going to look amazing on the ps4 yeah yeah i I, I agree that toriyama always being a key figure in the uh, games has really helped it stay so strong as a brand i think it i mean final fantasy uh amano will do a logo uh and that's basically it he'll do some character art that you'll you'll see in an art book but those games just are all over the place in terms of who's designing the characters uh, who's designing the world but it always just feels like a very toriyama a very a product of toriyama no matter which game you play yeah final dragon quest 
I, I was going to say Final Fantasy always feels a little more fractured in that regard because, I mean, look at Final Fantasy VI. The sprites look totally different from the character art, which looks totally different from, you know, 3D models, that sort of thing. Yeah. The Toriyama's art has always been very take-it-or-leave-it for a lot of people. Um, I know plenty of people who simply won't play Dragon Quest because they hate the art. Yeah, so I know They have like no love in their heart. I agree. I've personally come around to Toriyama's art, but I'll admit that I was kind of on that uh, that bandwagon for a little while where I was just like, oh, these characters look weird, and I don't know, like, it's just not an appealing art style to me. Um, it wasn't until I picked up the series and, like, really started to play it that it just really grew on me, and uh, I came to really appreciate it. But yeah, I never particularly liked the, the Dragon Ball Z look, as it were. Very distinctive. Um... And that's a strength and a weakness, I think. But uh, I was going to ask, have either of you played Dragon Quest Monsters Joker? No, I've I've been told several times to do it. And I think I have two, but I haven't played it. I really, really should. I've heard nothing but good things about it. Kind of what I wish Pokemon would be. Exactly. Mm. I mean that you go into the field and the monsters are all over the place and they're doing their own thing. And it just feels like a big really vibrant and interesting worlds and you can and and dragon quest relies so heavily on like the personalities of its monsters yeah um it just occurred to me that i totally forgot to give my own favorite monster it's a slime knight (laughs) not a a super revolutionary pick or anything but i just love this uh cute little knight with a sword sitting on a big green slime um, I actually have a Slime Knight figure on my desk. I, I love it a lot. I believe, uh, Kat, I, I'm going to blow your mind here. The slime he's riding is not a real slime. What? What? It's a toy. What? That That's part of the canon. Blown. That's part of the canon. Oh, Dragon Quest canon. Yeah. Right here. <laughs> I kind of wondered about that. of the Blood God. Because like, it's such an unusual looking slime. Like, like just this green, humongous green slime. It's like, what species is that? I will admit, I wondered that for many years. Yep. That's why I'm here, for things no one could possibly care about. Dragon Quest's really vibrant, um, stable of monsters makes games like Dragon Quest Monsters Joker work, but also allow them to play around with the the mechanics. Because, like you know, in Dragon Quest V, you can actually recruit the monsters, yes. which is so awesome, and it's it's in a way that's almost in some ways more satisfying than even like a game like Shin Megami Tensei. Because the monsters talk to you and they have their own personalities, which they do in SMT as well. But uh, the monsters are all really familiar and fun. So it's fun to get a slime in there and have it be named Gutrude. (laughs) Yeah, the puns are great. And also in Dragon Quest, the monsters aren't like total jerks like they are in uh, SMT. Like just fickle jerks. Mm. To be fair, they are demons. They're just out to troll you. Yeah. (laughs) The demons are out to troll you all the time. Well, uh, Dragon so, Quest V, I'll tell you what, the great dragon is a jerk, because I never could recruit him. Tried many, many mm. times. What's jerk. the name of the big, the, like, the humongous monster that um, that looks kind of oh, furry and has the wings? The behemoth? Behemoth? Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, he, that, w- that was a tough battle, too. Holy moly. Oh, yeah. That's always a tough battle. Uh, he's one of the first things you see in Dragon Quest Monsters Joker 2, and you're basically like just trying to stay out of its way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Because it's going to kill you. That's a good tactic. The thing is like the size of a tower, tactic. only bigger. Yes, absolutely. All right, that was our favorite monsters. How about our favorite moments in the Dragon Quest canon? Um, so I guess I'll start with this one. 
I think the moment that turned me on to Dragon Quest um, was the beginning of Dragon Quest V. And by the way, this is a spoiler alert. Um, so if you haven't played the series and you really care about spoilers, maybe you, maybe you want to take a moment to go play the first bit of Dragon Quest V. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> spoiler alert for a 20-year-old game. Uh, Dragon Quest V begins with your child and you're traveling with your father who is an adventurer. And you are slowly but surely developing. And there's like an evil about the land. And the first kind of part of the game ends with your father dying and you being taken into slavery. And my first thought was, oh, well, okay, so we'll have the scene where, like, you escape from prison, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then it's, like, ten years years later. later. And you're like, what? And I'm like, oh, my God, that's really dark. You grew up in, like, a mine. Yeah, like that game has so many rough moments like that. Just holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. You grew up in the spice mines of Kessel, (laughs) watching people get smashed into who knows what. Yeah, there were people, like... it's really pretty remarkable in its own kind of understated way. It really is. And if I could build off that uh, thought and uh, Dragon Quest V, and one of my favorite moments is uh, uh, the death of Pancras. That's his name, right? Pancras? Um, he, just where he, he knows that if he fights back, the bad guy will kill you. Uh, so he just stands there and takes these horrible blow after blow from these monsters and then just dies. Oh, yeah. And uh, going back even before that, it, you get this kind of bizarre moment where you meet yourself from the future when you're still a kid. And uh, you say to yourself, no matter how bad things get, keep your head up and just carry on no matter what, okay? And then he says, take care of your father. And it's like, ugh. Playing through the first time, it's like, okay, that was weird. The second time, I was like, oh, God, my heart just exploded. <laughs> hmm. It's a very, very sad game in many respects. But that's what Dragon Quest does really well. It balances Maybe not that. sad so much as melancholy very melancholy that's a good word for it it's it's a yeah. bittersweet game about uh growing up in the dragon quest world it really is and the fact that it takes place over the course of like 20 years yeah it, it really has an yeah. epic feel to it uh all right favorite moment for you nadia uh well i kind of went over one of them <laughs> yeah but um going back to i guess the first dragon quest why don't i do that where you can say to the Dragon Lord, I want to join you, and the game crashes, and <laughs> you have you are well within your rights to crap your pants if you were like a little six-year-old playing this for the first time. <laughs> I broke the, it. <laughs> I, I seriously thought that. And the, drag- the, the Dragon Lord doesn't explicitly kill you, which makes things worse. He's like, half the darkness is yours. Uh, now take a long, long rest. And he, he brings your hit points down to zero, uh, but it, I don't think it says you died. It, it just like, the, the game, like, the screen turned red, which indicates that you died, but if anything, it kind of indicates that he turned you into a zombie. You, you died on the inside. You died on the inside, and it, it, you totally get that impression. Your moral center has crumbled. It really has, and it's like, you pretty much get everything you expected if you say yes to the bad guy, yes, I will join you. It's like, okay, uh, you are now uh, part of my hell spawn. Have fun. Yes, it's a very uh, it's a very interesting development for an NES game. It's such an early RPG. It's not something yeah. I remember seeing repeated in too many other games. Like it's a very striking moment. Some really interesting, really interesting storytelling for an eight bit game. But I mean, the NES era was very much a doing 
as much as you can with as little as uh, with very few resources. Well, the it, was very, it was very effective. <laughs> it was a very effective means of storytelling, like to, to let you know, hey, this is the dragon lord. He's not a nice guy. Like he'll honor his deals, but you're, you're not going to like where it goes. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't make a deal with the devil. Yeah, that you should probably just kill. Yeah. And uh, just to, to quickly bring up uh, Dragon Quest Seven, uh, Dragon Quest Five again, uh, and talking about melancholy things, uh, the fact that you turn into a stone statue and watch someone else's kids grow up while your own kids are out of your reach—that's uh, kind of heartbreaking. That is pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, that's one Spoiler of the alert. more tragic Spoiler moments. Alert. And the montage that comes with it, uh, as like the yeah. years change, yeah, the seasons change. Uh. Wow, we're all, we're really only going to be talking about Dragon Quest Five in this. No, podcast, I have I have another moment that's not from Dragon Quest Five. Yes, it's yes Dragon Quest right. Three. It's it's yes. uh, okay. This is the spoiler, but I don't think it will ruin. I mean, you have to have played the first two games and also have been a child, like in the late '80s, for this to actually have any effect on you. But the greatest thing about Dragon Quest Three is you're playing through this game, you're journeying, making all these steps as you would in any RPG, any Dragon Quest game. And then um, something happens. I will keep it vague just in case you want to play the game and figure out why it happens and see for yourself. But uh, something happens and you go to another world, another map, another world map. And as you travel through this new world map, you suddenly realize like, oh, this is I'm in Dragon Quest one. Yes. And I'm the legendary hero that that hero was tracking down the armor of. Like in Dragon Quest one, your goal is to track down Loto or Erdrick, depending on the version you're playing track down that legendary hero's gear to kill the dragon lord with you are that legendary hero in dragon quest 3 but you don't realize that until the very very late game plot twist where you end up um doing what the legendary hero did you're actually living out that role that was only talked about in dragon quest 1 so that's an amazing amazing plot twist for a 1988 uh, famicom game that's a really (laughs) amazing twist that it managed to put all the pieces together like close the loop on the dragon quest 1 2 3 trilogy and um, it, it was such a smart and, and interesting idea for uh, for a game of that era to make. It really was. Dragon Quest Three was when Dragon Quest Mania took hold, like completely in Japan. Yeah. Right. That was the famous story about how they had like the the oh, Japanese dude. economy measurably dipped. Yeah. Because everybody was <laughs> everybody going was out school and work to buy yeah. the game. I think it was. I think it was the, the highest selling game until seven. Um, came out for the PlayStation, which sold a lot. I could be wrong, though. I, I know a later game topped it, but for a while it was the the, the highest-selling Dragon Quest game, and I know Nintendo Power wouldn't lie to me. <laughs> That's the one that I feel like American fans don't know as well, I, I think, That's, just because... Yeah, I, even I haven't played that one, because I missed out mm. on that early those early PlayStation years. I'm really excited for the 3DS remake, though. I'm definitely going to pick that up. If you, if you talk to a, a Japanese uh, fan... I've had plenty of them say that Dragon Quest Three was their favorite. Yeah, it's definitely um, been remade the most. Um, it is that, such a that or one. Yeah, I mean, Three is such a just a huge epic game on a scale that no one had seen before. Yeah, um, but- it's such a massive, massive game, uh, and it, it impressed me so much at the time just how big the world was. Yeah, and as you said, going down to the world of Dragon Quest One at the end of the game made you realize how big it was because it wasn't a small little interpretation of of the Dragon Quest One world. It was fully realized all the towns were there all the i love seeing like the characters like the the minstrel who that one town was named after uh shoot i can't remember his name it starts with a g but you actually see him you meet him and he's having a falling out with his parents there's just like this really a lot of neat world building going on 
sort of like in Pokemon where you finish, or Pokemon Gold and Silver, where you finish the first eight uh, badges and they go, all right, now go back to Kanto and beat the eight gyms from the original game. Yes. How have things changed? Here you go. You're part of a larger world. Exactly. It's real, I love it when games do that. If I had to oh. guess, I, I'm guessing that was probably they had Dragon Quest on their minds when when making that choice because mm. those guys grew up playing Dragon Quest games like yeah. as teenagers. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, Super Metroid, the first time you go back into the Torian base. Yeah, like, that's right. Re- really early on, that was super cool too. Yeah. So. Yeah, this feeling of revisiting what came from before, but with in a greater context and with a new perspective can be really effective in, in a game. Absolutely. All right. So I suppose this is question number three, and it's the most obvious one. What's your favorite game in the series not named Dragon Quest V? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it cool if I go first? Sure. I have a direct, this might be like an easy answer, uh, but it's Dragon Quest IX for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is just this uh, huge, amazing game. People scoffed when they heard Dragon Quest was go- going to the DS. Like, what is what is Enix yeah, thinking? But it is such a, just a great mashup of like Dragon Quest plus MMO plus Monster Hunter um, with like ro- roguelike dungeons and all kinds of crazy extra content. And you can sink 200 hours into the game and get like 23% of that content unlocked. It just the biggest most just it's like this pinata full of dragon quest goodness uh, i will never write that but i can say it because <laughs> never use goodness people but still like it just there's so much crammed in that little cart and i played it so much and i i want uh, i would kill i would murder someone for a uh, an hd remake like a 3ds yes. uh, remake of dragon quest mm-hmm. 9 with the street pass as it should have been in the first place you know um actually functioning one of the, uh, I, I totally agree with all your points, uh, uh, Bob, and one of the funniest things that ever happened to me was I was actually, I live in a suburb of Toronto, and I was actually standing on the corner waiting for a bus, and I had my uh, DS with Dragon Quest Nine in there, and someone must have driven by, and I actually got <laughs> someone from my inn, just from someone driving by, I guess because it was a fan expo was, was going on at the same time, but I loved the inn, just bringing my, my DS to Otakon that one year, and everyone just had these maps they were exchanging and visiting each other's inns, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I did manage to exchange the maps, but uh, I feel like that was, I mean, that was obviously designed for people in Japan living in a, in a denser area, yeah. and everyone would be playing Dragon Quest when that during that game's uh, release, so it, w- yeah. it was designed Everybody. for that context only, and not for <laughs> me living in Santa Fe in the middle of a desert. Yeah, that, that's why it was so funny for me to get a, a, that pass on the corner, it's like, what the, that was odd. The biggest Dragon Quest, I mean, Dragon Quest is so big in Japan still that there was an actual Dragon Quest cafe that you could go to and at the end of the set meal they would give you a special map and so we all let's see me Jeremy and somebody else all went and we went and collected our map and it was super awesome but it just goes to show like how I, I guess mainstream Dragon Quest is that they can have these like nostalgia bars and, and it works yeah. I'm so jealous <laughs> right, but um, I'm kind of glad that Dragon Quest kind of has that steady presence when like other Japanese properties seem to be kind of fading away, as it were. It's because it's so nostalgia driven. Yeah, um, like everybody in Japan has driven up, uh, driven up, grown up with Dragon Quest in the same way that everybody in Japan grew up with Gundam to one extent or another. Mm-hmm. Like it's part of their childhood, and I think to 
a greater extent, and this might be getting into a little pop psychology stuff, it's sort of recalling like a moment in time when Japan was really at the peak of its power, of uh, its economic power yeah. in the 80s when Japan could do no, no wrong and this tiny island was like bursting forward into the international scene and owned video games. Um, You're right, Kat. I mean, uh, in America, uh, during the Depression and the recovery from the Depression, we made movies about, like, the Roaring Twenties. How great were things in the Twenties? Everyone was just partying and having fun. So, like, that's something that we even did as, as a nation, as a, as a culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of reco- recalling that that particular time in a lot of people's lives. And now people who grew up in the 80s and were around for the 80s, they're getting into their 40s. Um and I mean, they're still playing Dragon Quest and everything. I'm kind of wondering, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious how the younger generation in Japan sees Dragon Quest. Um, I know that Final Fantasy has fallen off considerably over there, but I, I think Dragon Quest has just been such a constant that it feels like everybody's grown up with it. Yeah, so. I can see that being the case, especially I can see parents being really enthusiastic about getting <laughs> their kids into it. Yeah, for for as much as I see like uh, parents dressing up their babies like Ewoks and R two D two and stuff, like I can see Japanese parents like having their kids in like a slime onesie or whatever. <laughs> like this is what you like because I like it. Yes, no, that, that, I think that's absolutely true, and I think Star Wars is another great example that uh, is driven as much by nostalgia as actual merit. No offense to Star Wars, I mm-hmm. actually really like Star Wars. All right, um, Nadia, what's your favorite game in the series? Uh, the easiest answer is three, um, mm-hmm. just for uh, because Bob went over many of the reasons. Um, it's just basically like playing Dragon Quest One on a, on a much more epic scale. Uh, it's kind of like upgrading from the original Mario to Mario Three. Um, it's just a quest that goes on and on. Plus, it was really the first one of the first RPGs to or uh, Japanese RPGs to really get us into the class system, um, rather to like switch classes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always kind of like the idea that the best class, the Sage, uh, you couldn't just switch to that. You had to actually go on a specific quest to get a specific book that you could use to switch over to this class. Or you could start off with the character, the Jester, Goof-Off, whatever, you wanted to, whatever translation you want to go with. And if you could endure that stupid character until you got to this, this class-changing uh, scholarly town, then you could switch them right away. But uh, that's not worth it. <laughs> but uh, three just has is a very um, just has a very epic feeling in general, and it has a, a good soundtrack too that accompanies you the whole way. So I- I'm very nostalgic for it. Uh, I would love to own the actual cartridge along with uh, you know like the full quest book map, everything that came back with the with the game in the day. I was kind of looking up to see if Dragon Quest three or Final Fantasy three came out first. Probably Dragon Quest three, right? Yeah, Dragon so. Quest three was eighty eight and Final Fantasy three was ninety. So okay, that yeah. Answers your question. So Yay! Dragon Quest uh, totally beat out Final Fantasy with the job system. I should also give a shout out to eight because that was uh, that was the game that helped get me back into Dragon Quest because I like, eight is good. Eight's very good. All the eight all the eight fans are going. What the hell? <laughs> Why aren't you talking about eight? No, I, I definitely admire eight uh, because for a long time I've been off Dragon Quest because I didn't have a PS one uh, and I was very late getting a PS two. Uh, so then I just kind of played Dragon Quest Eight, and um, for one thing, I was slaughtered very quickly because I, I was I realized Dragon Quest does not pull its punches. Uh, it is not yeah. an easy RPG when it when it wants to challenge you. But oh, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. 
I, I did. I, I love A2. I think the thing it did best and what pe- some people might not like about it, it might be too simple for some, but it, it ditched the messy and frankly kind of bad job systems from 6 and 7 for something much more streamlined, much more approachable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you still have to plan out in advance, but you, you at least know what direction you're going in. You at least know when you're going to level up that job. Yeah. So Or, or that weapon or whatever you're leveling up. It I think very, it's a weapon-based. Yeah, it's a very weapon-based slash character-based game. Uh, I am perfectly okay with the idea of just sticking to four characters and going on an adventure, especially since it had such a huge overworld. And it was one of those games where you could look at the distance. we all love Yangus. Oh, Yangus is the best. He has the underpants dance. Yeah. <laughs> How could you not Angus love that? Is, uh, the the kind of the the dumb looking guy who accompanies the um our our little goblin friend um at the beginning of the game. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the caravan, so now he's there for pretty much from the beginning. Yeah, the thing that stuck stood out to me about Dragon Quest Eight <clears throat> was just how gorgeous it was. It was very, very nice looking game. Uh, one of the best looking games on the PlayStation Two, um, and it came out in two thousand. I believe 2004 or 05 it was Um, uh, was 05 here and I think 04 in Japan very late stage PlayStation 2 kind of era game Um, and at the time like Dragon Quest 8 it it got a big push it did Um, I remember commercials for it that was the biggest push the series had gotten since I mean maybe the original Dragon Quest yeah and it uh, it and it didn't sell that well, but there were plenty of people who were coming out going, "Well, this is going to be this is going to be better than Final Fantasy XII. You should totally check it out." Um, and it's it's endured in a lot of ways, and I'm glad that it's coming out on the 3DS, even if so am I. I don't think that'll be the optimal way to play it. I already I, I played it on mobile, so I can I can deal with it on 3DS. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to cheat. My favorite game in the series is Dragon Quest Five. Hey. hey, hey, hey! You're breaking the rules, man. <laughs> But I understand. It's good. Yeah. It's 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 up there for me. It's up there for me too. It's like three. Dragon five, Quest eight. Five is not only my favorite game in the series. I I think it's one of my four or five favorite RPGs ever made. Mm-hmm. It's just um, somebody commented um, when I was asking on Twitter what their favorite Dragon Quest moments were. Um, that Dragon Quest Five is way better if you are an adult when you play it. Because it, there's the one perspective of the high adventure and everything, and then when, you, but if you're an adult, like you just kind of understand the ebb and flow of life, I suppose, and the the level of kind of tragedy in the story, yeah, and then absolutely. the kind of joy of traveling with um, your your character's wife and and the kids you end up having, and it just works on so many different levels and i think the monster recruiting system is pure gold uh, i uh, i i can't express enough how much i love dragon quest 5 and um if you're going to play one dragon quest i i, I would say get a copy for the ds for 30 bucks and pop it in your 3ds and play that one yeah i would have to go i would have to say that's my choice for a dragon quest inductee is five because it really strikes that amazing balance between modern uh mechanics and old school graphics it's uh it, it it's a very comforting game except when it shatters your heart <laughs> indeed and hopefully um so i mean you look at the recent history of the series uh dragon quest 10 was kind of an odd choice making it an mmorpg um Nine was uh, nine was excellent. Uh, it 
there are some people who really love it and there are some people who don't like it because it's not a traditional um dragon quest which i say eh i like it's it dragon it's quest eight dragon quest eight of course was the last like traditional um dragon quest and was freaking gorgeous um and americans are finally gonna get to play seven like for reals yeah i mean maybe you picked up dragon quest seven when it came out here in like 2000 but it was so completely overshadowed by the playstation 2 and it was just a weird game in general yeah here it was very long and rambling it's a game that was fraught with development problems and i think they addressed that by just making more game instead of making the game better This is this is true, but I think the 3DS version from what I've heard uh, does approach some of those issues with pacing, where it's like maybe maybe you get into your first fight before three hours. Oh God! Maybe get to the class change area before thirty hours. Things oh, like that. Lordy, lordy! That's what you're setting yourself up for with Dragon Quest Seven, people. And on that note, I, can't <laughs> I lived wait for it. The I 3DS lived remake. it. What's that? On that note, I can't wait for the 3DS remake. Me too. I can finally finish that damn game after having spent 120 hours with the PlayStation version. Wow. And I still have that save, but I think it's time to start start anew with Indeed. the with the facelifted version. All right. I went on Twitter and I asked all of you what your favorite Dragon Quest moments were. And here are some of the answers. At red underscore hedgehog, hearing about and witnessing the sad fate of Maman in Dragon Quest IV with accompanying haunting music. Dragon Quest IV is not one that we talked about too much, but I know that it is at least one of my friend's favorite games. Um, kind of an interesting game because it's split across different chapters to yes. a very different approach. Yeah, Definitely, I love the episodic yeah. structure. It's very interesting. And that's one thing that we didn't really talk about, but Dragon Quest is at its best when it's doing its little vignettes. Yeah, that seems to be the case, doesn't it? Indeed. All right, at Tavis Nickerson, I loved finding a map in Dragon Quest Nine that had a floor with nothing but metal slimes. I power leveled so much with that. Oh, that was beauty. that was Dragon yes. Quest Nine was just getting together with your friends and power leveling all day long. God, if only there were yes. that game had online I play, that. I would I would be dead now. I mean, it was fine the way it oh, is, yeah. or the way it was. I mean, my a couple of my like two of my best friends were like ended up picking up Dragon Quest Nine and playing through it in its entirety because it had co-op. And they were just, like, super into that idea. And that was a brilliant idea, having a co-op JRPG. Um, Egg-type Yo Dameron. That little personality test at the start of Dragon Quest Three gave a sense of ownership over the quest. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, that's right. With the the remake. The, for, I had actually had uh, Dragon Quest Three for Game Boy Color, and it was an Oh, that's a really remake good remake. Of uh, mm, the original. Oh, yeah, I forgot that it and, came out uh, on I remember Game Boy. And I bought the um, I bought the strategy guy too. I was a custodian back then, and I would actually take my Game Boy Color with me to work, and I'd kind of shove it in my pocket. And we had a lot of tunnels and like little secret hiding places in the in the mall where I worked, and I just kind of squirrel away and play Dragon Quest Three on my Game Boy Color. Dragon Quest Three was the first time the uh, Game Boy Color remake. That was the first time the American publishers were like, "Okay, fine, it's an anime thing. We'll put the anime guy on the cover. It's fine. Let's just yes. do it." <laughs> Yes, that's right, because Dragon Quest there's 1 a, and 2 remake, because I had that too. They had like this horrible CG yeah. cover. Like, With 3, there's a Goku as hell looking dude on the cover. One of Toriyama's two faces. I'm still here. One of Toriyama's two faces. How you doing? <laughs> I should point out, uh, okay, this is a tangent. We, we, do, we haven't talked about Toriyama. There's a, a joke about him that he doesn't know how to draw faces, or only has like one face. I've been reading uh, his early manga, Dr. Slump, and a character goes undercover as another character because he admits he can only draw one female face. 
<laughs> There's lots of uh, self-deprecating humor yeah. in his early stuff where it's like, I don't, I'm really, I'm really bad at my job. I live with my parents and uh, I can't draw certain things. I, I got to say, I, I love his art and it has a real iconic style to it, but I'm really more oh, me too. of his yeah, monsters yeah. than his humans. All right. At Mouse in the House, uh, Maya go back to going go back to showbiz, and the hero makes do with what he can. Very touching. All the cast was very human. Uh, that would be Dragon Quest Four, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. Dragon Quest Four. At uh, Damn It, Demand, uh, DQ Eight's symphonic score that I listen to at least once a week at work. Yeah, that was uh, the symf- the orchestrated version was for the American version exclusively, wasn't it? Uh, uh, for Dragon Quest Eight, or I heard like. Yeah, they yeah, essentially replace all of the, uh, I guess, MIDI or PlayStation 2 generated music with the orchestral soundtrack. Uh, it didn't loop mm. quite as well as it would yeah, have it, uh, originally, but it sounded a lot better. Mm. And they improved the yeah. a, a UI, too, to make it look more like a modern game. Yeah, and I think there's voice acting, too. Was it yeah, that's true. Yeah, thing? they really tried to make it, uh, spend a ton of money to make it more palatable. Or, or very British. Oh, yeah. It's, it now were. it's super, super <laughs> British. <laughs> At Sarcasm Order, accepting the Dragon Lord's offer out of curiosity... And dying. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there we are. <laughs> if I remember right, I did this the so first that, time I reached him. Had to do the whole castle again. Yeah, Ouch. my heart is over my hand for you right now. I totally, I totally sympathize. Um, at Serial, uh, dying to the first monster after crossing a bridge in Dragon Warrior. Yes. Learned to stay in my bounds. Yes, that they would say when you cross bridges, there is danger. And they're not exaggerating. It's like one minute And things get more expensive. Yeah, they do. That's what happens when you go from Berkeley to San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) That's for you locals out there. (laughs) When life reflects art. But like, you know, one minute you're fighting a slime, the next minute your skeleton has taken your skeleton out of your skin. (laughs) That also happens in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say that happens in Oakland, but moving on. Ryan painting skeletons. We got some some snobbery, some Bay Area snobbery. At Celtic 4, finding Erdrich's armor in the first game. Yeah, I'm old. You know that's that's a very satisfying moment because you have to beat the axe knight if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and yeah. Oh, you, know, you just think you're clever. You're like, I'm going to run away from this battle, and uh, you run away from the battle. But you don't just start where you you don't just start on that square on that tile. You get sent backwards a tile. So if you want to actually get this armor, you have to trigger the encounter and beat the jerk. I'm going to totally butcher this handle, and I apologize. Um, at Miami NWR. The NPC in Guadia Quest, which was the oh, yeah. the full like the miniature RPG at the end of Retro Game Challenge. <laughs> the NPC in Guadia t- Quest telling me the key to enjoying Dragon Quest games is not to grind, but to always go as far as you can. Yeah, that's not the safest way, though. You gotta do it the safe <laughs> way, man. Well, they let you keep your experience life. points at least. That's true. And half your gold. Enjoying Dragon Quest. It's, there's a secret to enjoying Dragon Quest right oh, there. Would I be able to read one of these? I found one that uh, pointed out something I forgot to mention. Sure. What was that? Uh, Jonathan Martin says, uh, defeating Duel Magus uh, in Dragon Quest Eight and realizing there was a larger force at work and you had 20 to 30 more hours of the game to play. And that is something that yeah. I forgot about. Like, yeah, um, same here. I, d- I just assumed he would be the last boss because I had played like 80 hours of the game. <laughs> but uh, no, no, there was so, so, so much more to do. And that is a, such a huge game. Yeah, Dragon Quest does not skimp on content. Vincent Kinian, if we're going for saddest moments, I'll throw in being turned to stone in Dragon Quest V and seeing your dad die in both five and three and seeing Rosa die in four. Dragon Quest is a horrifically depressing series for what I'm saying. It really can be. I agree. And... 
at Sev521, when you go to Necrosaro and Four, and you're disappointed because he looks like the previous boss, and then Nightmare Fuel. <laughs> Spe- specifically on the NES version, it's a really badass transformation. Yeah, that's right. I remember that now. Eesh. No memories from Dragon Quest Two or Seven or Six. I've noticed like there's a reason. Uh, four, five, eight in the original are the ones that are being referenced the most, and nine to an extent. I suppose that's because two. Uh, I suppose that's because two and seven are a little more obscure in the in the Dragon Quest verse. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I don't consider myself an authority, even though I played a lot of these games. But in, in my gateway guide to Dragon Quest, which is on the site, I consider. Um, six and seven to be sort of the le- the least essential games to play i mean you should still play them if you like them but they are a little too cluttered uh the developer who made both of those games only did those two games and i think that was the that was the real issue their heartbeat just didn't they weren't super great at making rpgs yeah all right so we're running out of time the last one i wanted to read was from jonathan higgins and he said, the collective cheer across Twitter when Dragon Quest 7 and 8 3DS were finally confirmed outside Japan. Yay, I agree. We're only getting it four years late. Yeah, but we're getting them. That's yeah. the important That's thing. That's Dragon Quest in a nutshell, though. A little late when it comes to America, but always worthwhile. When Nintendo gets desperate, it's Christmas for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> It's exactly now. It. Now they're so desperate, like, oh god, we we now we have to sell the mother three. It's come to this. <laughs> Swallow <laughs> our pride. Let's get it over with. Yeah. See also Xenoblade Chronicles, but um, and he has also all of Dragon Quest Five. So there yeah. we go. Dragon Quest Five, loving right here. Mm-hmm. And uh, as for us, uh, Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are sold. Subscribe to us, rate to us, um, send us an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Want to hear your feedback. And we always enjoy your comments in the comments section over on the site. Um, now that we've kind of dealt with the spam, we're actually getting conversations again. Yes, it's, wonderful. it's safe now. Come, in to, come to the waters. Yes, come back. Come it's out fine. Of the it's okay. In any case. We had a full scale um, war on spammers. Uh, Bob, we can find you on Twitter at. Bob Servo. That's um, correct. Got anything to pitch? Yes. Uh, as I said earlier, you should listen to Retronauts, my classic gaming podcast I do with my EIC and buddy Jeremy Parrish. And we did a Dragon Quest episode. It's in the feed. Just look it up. I forget which number it is. But it goes over all the games, the influences, uh, where they came from, who made them, and so on. So that's Retronauts. And uh, I also do Talking Simpsons, a chronological exploration of the Simpsons. We do it episode by episode. And right now we're in the middle of season three, which is amazing. Yes. So go do LaserTimePodcast.com. Or just search for "Talking Simpsons" in your podcast device, and you'll find it. If you like, if you like Simpsons, uh, I think you'll like the show. All right, Nadia, we can find you at Nadia Oxford. And do you have anything to pitch? Uh, let's see. I have my website, Tiny Girl Tiny Games, where I just talk about not just handheld games, but anything that really kind of interests me in the industry or gaming culture in general. Uh, on US Gamer, I have a semi-regular. Uh, column called Noteblock Beatbox, which I just kind of disassemble a piece of game music that I happen to like and uh, reminisce over it. Recently I did Castlevania 4, which of course has a fantastic soundtrack uh, with like a ton of kettle drums. I go nuts about the kettle drums, so give that a read if you want. And uh, you should also go over to the site and check out our gateway guide to Dragon Quest, which Bob alluded to earlier, but we recently re-promoted and updated a little bit. Um, and uh, if you didn't notice, we have a video podcast now yes. uh, from us to you. 
Uh, I've been slowly ramping up the production values. Promise we're on episode four on the video channel. I promise we're going to keep doing this every week, or at least I'm going to do my best. Um, And if you don't want to watch it entirely on video, you can also get the audio version either on SoundCloud, where you can also find Acts of Blood God. Just check out US GamerNet. Or you can just download it straight from the Libsyn, or you can find it on iTunes. So don't worry, you don't have to look at our faces. You can just listen to our lovely voices. Hey. So you won't turn to stone. <laughs> Indeed. And for that, uh, for Bob, Mike, Nadia, myself, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Happy adventuring. <laughs>